Hello everyone, this is the North East Law Review podcast. My name is Neve. I'm Matt. And today you're stuck with us, unfortunately. We've had some great guests on the podcast recently. So if you've not gone and listened to episodes five and six, which are with guest hosts, please do go and show those some love and give them a lesson. However, today we are joined with Kevin Crosby, who's a senior lecturer here at Newcastle University. And today we're going to be talking to him about his research on the historical development of the jury franchise. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you. And how is how is 2021 going for you so far, um, despite the lockdown? <laughs> well, it's sunnier than it was. It's less snowy, um, looking decidedly spring-like. Yeah, I'll just add to that, that I felt the first bit of summer in me today when the sun was out. It's really, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, I went for a, I went for a walk down um, to the quayside, I think, yesterday or the day before, and it was, it felt it felt really nice to get some fresh air. I don't, I don't often like treat myself to a walk enough. And I think because the weather had been so bad and so mm. cold, the first sign of spring, I was like, get me out of, get me out of the house. <laughs> careful, so, got to be careful with them orange scooters though, when you go another walk down the quayside. <laughs> yeah, definitely get, <laughs> get mowed over with one of those. I thought, I thought they weren't meant to go near the river. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, they're not, but I think I think people are definitely using them to get around. <laughs> I hear them at all hours of the day outside my room um, and all hours of the night as well. So, Kevin, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners? What's your background? Where are you from? Your kind of university postgraduate career so far? Yeah, uh, so I'm from Leicester. Um, I did my undergraduate at Sheffield Hallam. I then went on to do my master's and PhD at Leicester. Um, before I came to Newcastle, there was a moment during my PhD where I spent four months living in DC, uh, which was very fun, um, doing some research at the Library of Congress over there. And then I've been at Newcastle since 2012. Wow, that sounds great. What kind of research were you doing in the Library of Congress? Uh, it was quite ill-conceived and didn't really work. I, um, the idea was it was going to be for a chapter for my PhD. There was this one significant case uh, to do with ideas surrounding jury independence, jury power and so on in the US uh, from 1895. The idea was I was going to go away and basically look at everything that was referred to in that case because it was massive. And I just about managed to do that in four months, but it really wasn't a very good idea. Didn't work out as meaningful as I thought it would be. Um, I did manage to find one pamphlet on literally the last day I was there of the four months, managed to hurriedly get some photos of it and then publish a, a, a book chapter on that particular pamphlet about seven years later. So something came out of it in the end, but it took quite a long time. Yeah, that's really cool. Um... So what do you teach specifically at Newcastle? Um, I know that from other friends of mine that you do evidence, um, but is that the only module? Um, evidence has been the main module for me this year. I'm doing some criminal law seminars as well this year. I normally teach on law and history when that runs, but it's not been able to run for a couple of years for various reasons. We're hoping very much to have it back next year. Um, what else? I've done lots and lots of limb teaching. I was module leader on limb for a million years, but I haven't done that for a couple of years. Um, so yeah, evidence, criminal law, law and history. Yeah, that, that's kind of my main teaching. Just briefly, I was going to ask, what 
sort of stuff is on the law and history module? So the way we try and run it is essentially each lecture is a kind of introduction to a topic rather than giving you loads of material like in a lot of modules we, we gear the whole thing up towards you producing one big research project at the end mm -hmm. a kind of three and a half thousand word essay so the idea is each lecture is a kind of introduction to a topic that you might choose to research and then all the seminars and so on are about kind of building up your skills so that you can do that more significant research project towards the end of the module yeah that okay, cool. sounds that sounds like a lot of reading <laughs> Certainly is. <laughs> Students tend to do very well though. Combining both law and history sounds like book central. Um, what's your what's the evidence module about? Because I think that might be useful for second years who are starting to think about their module mm. choice. Yeah, so we, we almost entirely focus on criminal evidence. I suppose it's not it's not terribly similar to criminal law, but it's also not terribly dissimilar either, because me, me and Sam Ryan teach the module together. So there are some kind of structural similarities. We have things like um, critical comment stuff on the problem question in the same way as, as you have for criminal law at second year. And um, the main kind of substantive difference is for most of the modules you'll study on a law degree, you're looking at the actual rules. So kind of the, the substantive rules. So, okay, here, here are some facts. Has this person committed murder? Here are some facts. Has this person breached this particular EU law rule? What we're looking at for evidence instead is not really those substantive rules, but how we actually arrive at those facts that you normally presume. Um, mm. So it's all to do with can we, can we, what we call, adduce particular pieces of evidence? Is the jury allowed to hear this stuff, essentially? Cool. No, that that sounds really interesting. What, um, so a little bit away from teaching and back onto research, um, we we're going to be talking about um, your work in relation to juries and sort of the history of juries in a little, in a little bit. But um, is, that, is juries, I guess, the main area of your research or is there anything else you're doing at the minute or that you've done in the past? Yeah, juries is the main thing that I've, I've looked at. So the history of the jury. Um, of course, what I like about it is that it's it's a funny institution that can take in all sorts of adjacent topics because it mm. sits in a, in a space between kind of legal and non-legal because it's where you've got ordinary people coming in applying legal rules. It sits in a really nice space that lets you kind of say, okay, well, while we're looking at this, here's something else we can look at. So how did you get into your line of research? Was there a particular thing you read or it, maybe when you were in your undergraduate? Yeah, everything's been an accident um, all the way along. So I think studying criminal law as an undergraduate when we had the old law of gross negligence manslaughter, um, there was this idea, and it's still there, I suppose, but this idea that the legal test for gross negligence manslaughter leaves too much space for the jury because it doesn't really tell you what the law is. It says to the jury, basically, this is a crime if you think it's serious enough to be regarded as a crime. And that's a strange circular argument. Mm. And so that at the time, not so much now, I don't think, but at, at the time was combined with concerns about the Human Rights Act to say there's an Article 6 issue there um, because you're not really giving someone a fair trial. There's an Article 5 issue there because you're, you're holding people to legal rules that they couldn't really have anticipated when they acted. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. Let's look at that. The jury's a bit rubbish. Let's look at that. So I started off thinking that's going to be what my PhD is about. And then I 
as a lot of people do, thought, well, you know, we have to understand some of the history of how some of this developed in order to properly critique it. So let's look at that. Then that developed and became my entire PhD project. And then I ended up doing the legal history of the jury as my main research topic. So at no step of the way was I really going, this is the plan, I'm going to do this. I just sort of every step of the way went, well, let's look at that. All right, now let's look at that. Now let's look at that. And I just sort of stumbled over here. Now you're you're giving me flashbacks to my uh, criminal coursework I just handed in. I only handed it in the other day. So, <laughs> um, so is there a particular area of your research that you maybe like or dislike? Um, I think it's the same thing. Uh, it's the archival stuff. So for a lot of my research, I I go to. National Archives and various local archives as well to have a look at their court records to see what was going on beyond what just got discussed in Parliament and so on. And it's absolutely brilliant because you find things that you know for a fact no one else has looked at and you know for a fact you're adding something new and it's, it's just really interesting to find something you know other people haven't found and kind of even the people at the time who were producing these records you know they weren't thinking the things you're thinking because they obviously weren't coming at it with a kind of an attempt to understand what the jury system was in 1925 or whatever, they're just doing their job. And so even for the people who looked at the records for the first time, you know that they almost certainly weren't even thinking about it the way you were thinking about it. So there's just something new and interesting and a bit exciting about it. And um, so that's what I like the most, but it's also what I like the least as well, because uh, <laughs> obviously I've not been doing any of that for the last year. It's been right. quite difficult to get somewhere and find records. And that's left me a little bit stuck because Kind of the way I operate as a researcher is completely impossible mm. and it's a little bit uh, demotivating at best to be physically unable to do any of your research until all of this is over so for the time being I really dislike the fact that I do so much archival stuff but I know when we get the other side of this it will be the best bit of my job again. Yeah, I guess you'll have a you'll have a newfound love for it. You, it's kind of like you don't appreciate what you have until you haven't got it anymore. And I don't think I'm alone in that. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That I didn't really think about that side of things for sort of the academics because one thing that I say, um, as much as it's been tough, obviously going online, is that law is a subject for students that is the actual study of it is sort of I guess suited in a way. To go online compared to you know more fully practical courses um but obviously missing out on the sort of just seeing people is massive um and being in the library but yeah actually there is some people like yourself that really are missing out from not being able to go to places um it's not really something yeah not really something i really thought about um yeah it's definitely not something i thought about i think you because mm. i I don't know about you, Matt, but I draw almost all of the resources online now. All our textbooks are online. If I'm researching for an essay, I'm straight onto Westlaw. I'm not there going through the library book by book trying to find what I need because I can no. just put in keywords. So I think it's it's kind of refreshing to hear that, Kevin, you have to go out and find physical copies yeah, of things in yeah. order to do your research. That feels very foreign to me. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've, I've tried arranging for digitisation of some sources and uh, I think it depends on the archive as well because some of them have been quite good at saying, OK, here's a reasonable price. There's one place that I shouldn't name who has uh, 
I've contacted them a couple of times about some digitization and it's for a source that I know if I was stood there with a camera, it would take me one hour to get pictures off. They want about a thousand pounds for that much work. It's, wow. So, so yeah, there's quite a bit of what I do that just simply isn't possible until mm. I can get on the train. Mm, interesting. Um, so your blog, which we are going to talk about in a little moment, um, is an article you wrote. So what is the process, I guess, when you're, for you, because obviously it varies from person to person, for when you're researching and writing articles? And then what is it like putting that into a, maybe a shorter blog form? Um, I tend to be a person who thinks as I write. So the process for me is just generating endless, endless, endless text and then trying in the end to think, what what am I actually saying? Mm. How, how can I turn this into something? So I, I tend to fully rewrite things several times just because the first time I write it, it, it's just me thinking and me kind of making notes and things like that. And then I have to go, okay, blank sheet of paper, let's start again. Um, I think that makes the process of turning things into a blog post reasonably all right, because I'm already fairly comfortable just binning things that aren't working and saying, okay, blank sheet of paper, start again. Um, and that's essentially what I think you have to do for a blog post, because everything's so short, obviously. You can't really go into it saying, well, here's this 20,000 word journal article. Um, I've got a thousand words for a blog post. Let's just have one in 20 words. Like That's obviously not going to work. So I guess the fact that I tend to start again regularly with a fresh sheet of paper it makes that side of things a little bit easier. Yeah, it's it's kind of, it's great to hear that you feel like you're able to just put all your research to one side and start again. I think for, I've written many essays where I've tr been trying to formulate an argument as I've been doing my reading and then it comes to me actually writing my essay and I unconvince myself of my own argument as I write it and then I have to scrap it all and start again and it tends to be a massive stress so it's nice to hear that that's actually a really normal part of the process. Yeah absolutely I think I think if you if you think by writing I think there's a danger really in keeping that first draft because you never like who thinks in a in a neat and tidy way so if you if you keep that first round of thinking inevitably what ends up on the page is not going to be neat and tidy whereas if you can go okay right well at least i know what i'm saying now you can kind of approach it again with a bit of clarity i think so how did you actually get to um write the article on the blog um I, when i was looking at it it was um it was an american source so did you just submit it or did they approach you how did it work um, so this was a bit of an unusual one in that it's kind of a house blog attached to the journal. So what they try and do is that for most of the articles that they publish, they try and have a blog post essentially attached to it. So kind of a, an open access, small version. It, it's not exactly of the article because that would be impossible, but making some of the main points from the article. So, so for that one, it was relatively straightforward. It was essentially part of the process. Um, but for other ones I've, I've written for, it's been a case of either, it's been for an organization that I've worked with before, like I've written things for the First 100 Years website, who, who've done a lot of stuff with um, uh, women in the legal professions after 1919. And because I've worked with them, they've sort of said, okay, well, we want something on this. Um, other times it's been that the British Academy have asked me to do one at some stage and that was again because 
I, uh, I'd had some funding with them and they were basically going around the people they'd recently funded and said, does anyone want to write a blog post? So a lot of it is sort of links that you've already developed. It, it, I, I know this isn't the case for everyone, but for me, I don't think I've ever written a blog post as my first contact with someone. It's always been a blog post mm. after there's been some initial contact prior. So I guess this is a good time to move on to your blog, Kevin. Um, so the title is The Jewellery Franchise and Ideals of Citizenship in Interwar Britain. So could you just explain, I guess, what it's about? Um, okay, so the Britain bit is definitely something that was written in by the blog editors rather than me, because it's very much England and Wales, um, which I suppose is a distinction that's possibly lost uh, in an American publication. Um, it's, it's basically coming out of a wider project I've been working on for a few years, looking at the consequences for the jury system of the 1919 Sex Disqualification Removal Act. So this was the act that you may have come across in modules like LIM, where women previously hadn't been able to be solicitors, barristers, magistrates, judges, jurors, all sorts of things. I mean, other areas of, of life as well. But many parts of the legal system were closed to women prior to 1919. And so what I've been working on for a few years now is what the consequence was for the jury system of the fact that women were no longer just blanket banned. It was no longer just a rule that you had to be a man. Um, what I wanted to look at specifically in this part of the project was ways in which it's not as simple as saying, hooray, the jury system became more open after 1919. Obviously it did in some ways because it used to be only men and now it was men and women. Um, but this part of the project was about saying, actually that created tensions, it created nervousness among sort of gatekeepers within the jury system. And so there were attempts over the following three or four years really to tighten up the jury system. And specifically what I wanted to look at was ways in which that tightening up wasn't motivated by citizenship concerns, but did echo various citizenship concerns. And I suppose what I want to say there is that citizenship fundamentally can be about one of two things. I think citizenship can be a kind of positive, nice thing where you say, okay, you develop a citizenry. What you've got to do for citizenship is find ways for people to participate in civic life and for the democracy to function in a better way because through citizenship practices, people become more engaged and more able to hold the powerful to account. Clearly the jury system is involved in that kind of thing. But there's also another side of citizenship, which is much more exclusionary, much more about saying, these are the people that count and these are the people that do not count. And I think that kind of thing can be seen in the reforms in the few years after 1919. So uh, there was an extension of property qualifications. What do I mean by that? Well, up until the 1970s, in order to be a juror, you had to occupy land of a particular value. That excluded lots of people because there were either people who were relatively poor and for example, if you lived in a council house, it was very unlikely that you'd satisfy the property qualification, even though you occupied property, it's unlikely that property would be deemed to be of sufficient value. Um, women as well seem to have been fairly systematically excluded by the property qualifications because it was often the case that if a husband and wife were living together, the husband would be formally registered as the occupier and the wife would not be, which would mean that the wife wouldn't satisfy that 
requirement. Um, there were 10 towns that didn't have to follow these rules. There were 10 towns that for various historical reasons were able to ignore the property qualifications and were able to essentially summon whoever they liked. Immediately after 1919, you can see some of these 10 towns are summoning quite a lot of women. So in the Midlands, you get juries of 50-50 men and women. Once, this, once you kind of, you've got these towns that don't have to follow the property qualifications and they're suddenly allowed to summon women, they're summoning 50-50 men and women juries. Whereas in the south of England, the three towns who don't have to follow the property qualifications can largely do what they like appear to summon zero women, at least to the assizes, which are kind of the, the high status courts that are going to try and murder, manslaughter, that kind of thing. So there ends up being a, a disagreement about whether these 10 towns are really should be allowed to ignore the property qualifications anymore. And you end up with the judges who say, no, they shouldn't be able to ignore the property qualifications because giving them a free hand allows them to import all sorts of prejudices. You have the Home Office who says, actually, you should allow these towns to carry on ignoring the property qualifications because extending the property qualifications is going to exclude lots of women from the jury franchise who weren't already excluded. The judges win, women get excluded. And this then has knock-on consequences because suddenly these towns have to put together lists of people who are qualified. Previously, they've been able to largely do what they like, so they find people for the jury, and that's fine. But now they need to have these lists of people who are qualified. And the problem is there's a paper shortage after the war, and it's going to be expensive to put together these lists of people um, in ways that hasn't had to be done before. And other towns have also had the requirement to put together lists suspended during the war as well. After the war, there's a time of austerity as well. So the idea of imposing this extra... Uh, this extra cost onto these uh, onto these local authorities isn't really politically tenable. So the government then has to find a way of making sure this isn't going to cost loads of extra money. And the solution they hit upon is they say, well, there is a list of people that already exists, and that's the electoral register. So what we're going to do is we're going to say local authorities go through your electoral register that you already produce, there's no extra printing cost here, and just literally write a J next to the name of anyone who occupies property of the right value. So we're going we're gonna to save you the money that way. And so we end up in a situation where the electoral register ends up being a fundamental part of juror qualification, something that kind of feels quite citizenshipy. So you've got the idea of jury service and being a voter, both kind of being administratively combined in the same paperwork. But what we can see from looking through how this happened is it has precisely nothing to do with citizenship in a kind of positive, nice way of reflecting the idea that jury service, like voting, is something that reflects citizenship. But it does have citizenship type implications because suddenly you have all sorts of people who haven't previously been excluded from jury service, excluded because of kind of citizenshipy voting type rules that of course are there now that we're using the electoral registers. So again, back to women. Um, now, not only is it the case that women everywhere have to uh, satisfy the property qualification, which they didn't previously in these 10 towns, it's now also the case that women have to be on the electoral register. 
And if we cycle back round to that earlier point that a lot of women didn't have property in their name, they had property in their husband's name, you kind of double up the issue because a lot of the women who did have property registered in their own name, it would, it would often be property that they had inherited. And then they'd be living in a home with their husband that was registered in their husband's name. So now you have all these women who even before we have the electoral register as the basis of uh, jury selection, would have been qualified because they, they had this property, are no longer qualified because they don't simultaneously have property and electoral registration because that property may be in a different place to the place where they're registered to vote. So kind of by extending, uh, uh, by, sorry, by using the electoral registers in this way, that's a whole load of people you exclude. Um, there are people who are excluded from electoral registration at this time on the basis of conscientious objection. So people who had said, I'm not gonna fight in the war were temporarily removed from the electoral registers. Well, now they can't be jurors either. So a kind of citizenship-based exclusion of people as voters ends up also excluding them as jurors. The other significant thing is people who are non-subjects, or I guess in this context we could say non-citizens. It had always been the case before 1922 that you didn't have to be a UK subject or a UK national in order to be able to serve on some kind of jury. For medieval juries, there was a practice where if one of the parties was not from this country, you could then have what was called a mixed jury, where half the jurors would be from England and half the jurors would be from somewhere else in the world. So there was a route by which non-nationals could serve on some kind of jury. That kind of jury gets abolished in 1870. And in, also in 1870, we get a new rule that says a non-UK national can serve on any jury at all, provided they've been here 10 years. It's only in 1922 when we get for the first time an idea that non-UK nationals simply can't serve on juries, because with a few exceptions like, um, like Irish nationals, if basically if you're not a UK national, you're not able to be on the electoral register. And now again, a citizenship type exclusion existing in the context of the electoral register gets rolled out into the context of the jury system as well. So this is really what this blog post was trying to untangle and pull out, that you get some pretty significant reforms immediately after 1919, which are absolutely not part of this story of, hooray, women can be jurors now, isn't everything nice? It's much more kind of, well, there are a lot of misgivings about this and you get the rules being significantly tightened up in a way that leads us to the citizenship space but a citizenship space that is really really exclusionary no that that's a that's a really good summary thanks kevin do you think that the exclusion of these women do you think it was a kind of an administrative consequence or do you think there was actually some I guess, some purpose, some malice behind it? And what do you think were the kind of motivations? You know, it's really difficult to tell because the judiciary were expressly told by the Home Office, if you do this, you will exclude thousands of women from jury service. They were told that. And they went ahead with it anyway. Um, so there's at the very least a kind of recklessness towards the exclusion of women. There's nowhere in the arguments from the Lord Chancellor's Office, the High Court judges, etc., that says we don't want women in terms, but they were well aware of the consequences of what they were doing. And we know that there are 
lots of people who weren't the people making the decisions, but people out in society more generally who were very uncomfortable about women serving. Um, so, for example, you have newspaper articles written by local officials saying things like, it's disgusting that men and women have to discuss these things together. So we know that there was a lot of discomfort among certain people, but it's difficult to draw a, a kind of definitive line to what the judiciary were doing, although we do know, as I say, that they, they were well aware of the consequences of what they were doing. Um, you mentioned about the Midlands and the South having different ways of approaching the ability to have 50-50 juries, men and women. Um, what Was there a reason for this? Or like, why do you think them areas or different, or some areas did and some areas didn't go for full 50-50 and some not? I think it has to be a cultural thing. Um, and it's difficult to pin that down because no one's going to write an article saying, I'm a massive misogynist and I'm going to exclude all women because I hate them. But there's definitely something to do with local practices. And it, the interesting thing is it's not kind of super local. It's not as if it's the people in one individual office in Bristol or wherever, like saying, okay, we personally, like the two or three people in this office are going to have all men. It's the fact that it was all three of the cities in the South, Bristol, Exeter and Norwich, all did this in the time where they had this massive discretion. And all the cities in the Midlands that had this discretion, so Leicester, Nottingham, Lincoln, uh, Worcester and Gloucester, they all did this 50-50 men and women thing. So the kind of, the, the local political cultures, I guess is what it would be. They weren't super local it does seem to have been a broader more diffuse thing i'd love to know exactly why we have these different political cultures but it's really hard to tell because it's not even as if you've got one circuit that's acting in a particular way so a circuit was kind of the subdivision that england and wales was split into so kind of seven or eight regional administrative areas and each of these circuits would have their own administrative staff it, it would make a bit of sense if it was like okay there's one circuit that does this and there's one circuit that does that it's not even as simple as that because the the cities i mentioned in the south are spread across two different circuits and again the cities i mentioned in the midlands are split across two different circuits so it's not even that you can say, okay, it's the, the people who are governing the circuit. So there's clearly a more diffuse political culture point here, but it's difficult to pin down the precise cause. No, no, that that's really interesting. What, um, sorry, Neve, I was going to jump on. Do you, is there any evidence or is there any way of knowing, I guess, what impact having 50-50 juries had um, or is it sort of I guess it maybe it might be a different difficult thing to measure? Um, it doesn't seem to have had a huge amount of difference I can't say this definitively based on my own research because apart from anything else the numbers are so small mm. I and mean, we're, we're looking at essentially one session um, at the end of 1919 and there is a massive and obvious difference between them but it's only one session and so most cities would only have two three four five trials within that session so it's hard to really say okay here, here's a, a set of differences that you can really follow through other people who've done similar work looking at the old bailey in the first half of the 1920s they've found that having more women on the jury after 1919 
doesn't seem to have changed the outcome, but it does seem to have changed the length of deliberations. Deliberations seem to have been a little longer and presumably more careful with more women on the jury. Mm. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, sorry, Dave, have you, have you going to ask something? I was just going to say, what, like, what were the kind of motivations for excluding, I guess, those places that kind of went out of their way to exclude women from their juries? What were the kind of motivations for doing this? Was it that they thought, again, that women would disrupt the, like, the way in which decisions were made? Or was it, I guess, kind of this weird protectionist thing where they thought women couldn't handle it? I don't know, what have you found from your research if you've looked into that? Yeah, so I think people were, and this may not be very surprising, I think people were very happy to jump on to gendered explanations of anything at all in order to say that women jurors were a bit rubbish. So there's evidence of, for example, that the first time women are summoned to the Middlesex quarter sessions in, in London. So it's kind of quarter sessions were a slightly lower status court dealing with kind of thefts and things, but they still had a jury kind of somewhere in between our court, our, our crown court and our magistrates court, but it, it was still a jury court. Um, so in, in one of these London uh, quarter sessions, the first time women are, are summoned, the Times had quite a lengthy article looking at all these people who are seeking exemptions and they were looking at things that are clearly going to affect men and women, things like I'm busy with work, things like that. And the Times chose to present it as a wholly gendered issue, even though we know from, from evidence looking at actual court records that men and women both turned up to court and said, I'm busy with work, I can't really serve. But of course, the Times are happy to say, you know, this shows just how stupid this is. Women are not taking their role seriously. Maybe they're not properly fitted for the responsibilities of citizenship and so on. So I think people were very happy to jump on gendered explanations for any perceived problems. They were also happy to kind of imagine and create problems. Uh, so there was an assumption that women ought not to be able to serve on particularly upsetting trials or particularly scandalous trials. Um, and it's hard to tell why that was entirely. I mean, it's not hard, but there are two explanations that get given at the time. One of them is that women are just going to find this really upsetting and they're not going to be able to rationally cope. The other option is it's scandalous to require men and women to discuss these things together both explanations get given. I mean, it's the fact that men and women can't discuss these things together is never really given as a reason why men should be removed from the jury. Uh, but, you know, this, this is one of the reasons it's given. And I think that's part of the explanation um, for how we end up with so few women serving in some places compared to others. There may simply have been a different understanding of what a scandalous thing was or what an upsetting thing was. Um, so, for example, the people who've looked at Old Bailey juries have found that women tended to be um, tended to be less likely to be to be on a jury whenever it was any kind of sexual offence. Presumably, because there was a decision that that was particularly upsetting, and or it was going to be scandalous for men and women to discuss the evidence together. That doesn't seem to have happened as far as I can tell outside of London. So when I've looked at the Assizes, which is kind of our equivalent to the Crown Court, and I've looked specifically at that kind of offence, 
women don't seem to be any less likely there to be jurors for most kinds of sexual offence um, compared to just for any old trial. So there does seem to be a difference in the capital compared to elsewhere in the country about what a scandalous, upsetting type of trial might be. The one exception to that, though, is that, and you'll have to excuse me for grouping these things together, obviously they are not one group, but they seem to be grouped together within the records. Women virtually never sit on a jury in the provincial assizes when the trial involves either male homosexuality or an offence against uh, a sexual offence against a child or a sexual offence against an animal. It's only in trials where a woman is the victim that you get women serving on the jury. And, and I mean, that's a majority of it as far as I can see. So for most of the time, women will appear on a jury in the provincial assizes if there is a sexual offence, apart from in those specific circumstances, which even though they're not conceptually the same for us at all, do seem to have been grouped together at least as being, these are the most upsetting or scandalous sexual offences and so women aren't going to be able to serve on these. So yeah, there do seem to be cultural assumptions there about the kind of things that women can and cannot serve on. Um, so I guess this is not exactly your, uh, I guess this is not really about the history of juries. Um, but to conclude, I think it might be good to put talk about juries in the modern day and talk about um, them being phased out and how COVID-19 has kind of impacted how the jury works. So we'll start with COVID. I think courts obviously during COVID-19 have been able to function online um, that haven't involved juries however court proceedings that have needed juries um, have um, not been able to do that obviously because due to administrative reasons um, Labour have called for juries to be cut from 12 people to seven people to kind of help social distancing and reduce infection rates because there have been, um, I see, I've, I've, I'm quite engaged with legal Twitter and I see there have been massive outbreaks at courts of COVID-19 through juries. What's kind of your opinion on how they should be running during a pandemic, especially given that there are, there's now a huge four-year backlog of cases? Um, I don't think... For me, I don't think there's any problem really with um, with having smaller juries for the time being. Um, my understanding from the empirical studies that have been done into juror decision making is that you can get away with a smaller number of jurors and not really affect the quality of the deliberations. That kind of this idea of having a group of people thrashing it out together still seems to happen if you have less than 12 people and really quite a few less than 12 people. Um, the other thing is that there's clear precedent. Um, so in certainly in World War One, I, I think a little later in the 20th century as well, but certainly in World War One, for I believe civil juries, uh, the, the number of jurors was cut just because the number of jurors available was less because so many people were off dying. Um, so I don't really see a problem from precedent. I don't really see a problem practically. I think the idea of cutting the number of jurors is really fine. I mean, it may be that fingers crossed we're a little late in the pandemic now for that kind of change to be to be made, given the lead-in time of making that happen. But in principle, I don't really see a problem with that at all, really. 
Yeah, I wasn't sure when I heard about that. I wasn't sure sort of, I guess, what the Twitter or the I guess, society sort of reaction would be. Um, I thought that the, maybe some people that are like, it's got to be 12 because that's what else has had. And for some reason it would be un- criminals and not would have like, um, obviously things have got to adapt. And if that means be smaller and it still works, as you say, then then, yeah, that's got to happen, I guess. Um I think there may also be the danger that people would think that a smaller jury wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to kind of cancel out underlying and subconscious bias that mm. um, may be able to be ruled out in like a larger group of people. For example, if you had five people out of seven who had a unconscious bias towards a certain characteristic of the defendant, that would be kind of cancelled out if you had 12 people because they would be the minority, but with seven, it would be the majority. But then I think that's quite rare. Yeah, I mean, I think there could be a perception issue. I think there's a there's a detail that would have to be worked out there about whether you'd effectively be having to get rid of majority verdicts and then bring in those kinds of issues. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can see there being all sorts of practical issues with it, yeah. So, and also in terms of not just COVID, but um, like the future of juries in general, do you think there's a potential for them to be phased out even further? I know in kind of the 1970s that they were phased out significantly and ever since then, the frequency of juries being used has become less and less. Do you think that they're going to be further phased out and what kind of impact do you think that will have on kind of this citizenship idea that you explored in the blog? Yeah, I think it's likely. Um, I also don't think it's certain. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, around about 2001, when we had the Human Rights Act, there, was, there were a lot of people who were absolutely certain we'd have to get rid of the jury because the jury didn't explain its verdict. And that's something that ordinarily has to happen under Article 6. Um, obviously that's not happened but that was 20 years ago and everyone was pretty certain that there were at least going to have to be major changes to the jury system that clearly didn't happen. Um, I think these kind of arguments come up from time to time. Um, I think it's likely but not certain. I think in terms of the citizenship type stuff I go back and forth on my on my thoughts about this all the time because on the one hand I am quite committed to the idea that it's quite useful if you're going to bother calling yourself a democracy to have some kind of institutional settings that helps you develop some kind of active citizenry. So a citizenship that goes beyond just a kind of exclusion of people we don't like and a permission to vote every few years. I think if there's going to be like, for me, I think there's, there's an attraction to having some kind of institutional space that lets us go a bit beyond that. And there is evidence from the states, although I don't see why it would be different here, that people who have served on a jury tend to be more engaged in civic life thereafter because of that experience of making a decision that matters and that has immediate consequences and that has a kind of public significance. And I think that's something worth keeping. On the other hand, it's not really fair because essentially what you're saying is our democracy is so rubbish that what we're going to have to do in order to maintain anything like an active citizenry is we're going to have to take a person who's accused of a serious crime and use them as an educative experience. And we might get the wrong answer, but hey, at least we'll have a minutely better informed citizenry. I mean, there's, there's obviously deeply unfair and stupid about that. So I really go back and forth 
about whether the continuing existence and use of the jury is ultimately a good thing or not. And I've been thinking about it for years and I, I really, really am no closer to answer. I think I know what the right questions are, but I have honestly no idea how you balance competing concerns like that. No, that's great. Great, thanks for that, Kevin. <laughs> one last one for me, and this could, this could be answered in yes or no. Um, have you ever sat on a jury? Yes. Okay. Cool. Did you tell them about your research or is that forbidden? I wasn't sure if someone, as I know there's exemptions for some legal professionals and stuff, I wasn't sure if someone who is uh, expert in jury law, I guess, and the history of jury would be exempt or not? Um, prior to 2003, there were loads of people who were exempt, but then in 2003, there was an attempt to say, the jury needs to have a much broader social base and have mm. fewer professional exemptions that frankly allows posh people to not have to perform their civic duties. Um, so there was an attempt to get rid of a lot of those kind of things to the extent that even like you have a retired police officer serving provided they've, they've not had anything to do with the case, they don't know the people involved, that kind of thing. Um, so no, I didn't say, I thought it was important to not mention to anyone. Mm. Um, I just sort of got on with my job as a juror. Um, I can't really say anything about the deliberations, of course, other than to say no. that I was really impressed with everyone, how whenever we went a little bit off course at all, there was always someone, never me, always someone who'd step in and say, we're not meant to be talking about that. And so I, I was actually really impressed with kind of the seriousness with which um, people just sort of stuck to the task at hand and didn't allow themselves to get distracted by things that they really ought not to be talking about. Mm. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin, for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting um, to cover another broad range of law. I feel like in the podcast now, we've really got a really broad umbrella of kind of things to talk about. And we've had a bit of public law and we've had a bit of EU law and we've now had a bit of like criminal kind of history style so mm. it's been really interesting um if there are any Newcastle University students listening who'd like to get involved or an academic or legal professional who'd like to come on and talk about their work um please email the podcast nelr at newcastle.ac.uk thank you very much Kevin for coming on thank you for having me and um, thanks Matt cheers thanks Kevin thanks Neve.